0: Talking books on New show, 106 to 108
1: I'm afraid an awful lot of people have stopped caring about the world in general. And therefore if they're reading a story about some celebrity's sex life, if it happens to be the case that let's say, if you could quantify it, 20% of the story is fiction. I don't think the consumers of that care very much because it's a good story and it's something to gossip about. And that is all it is, it's gossip. So there's been a real sort of disintegration in the fabric of public debate. You have newspapers, A, who are so underfunded now because of the destructive effect of the internet that they actually can't afford to do their job properly most of the time. So they can't afford to go out and get these facts. And then you have readers who are less and less interested in those facts, less and less worried about them. And the whole thing turns into this commercialized mess. I mean, I shouldn't overstate it. There are still a lot of very good journalists out there. There are still a lot of editors who want to try and do the job properly. But it's the whole thing's misfiring. It works particularly badly if you're trying to have a democracy. Because if you have a population that either doesn't care or is somewhat misled by misinformation that it's ingesting from newspapers, that plays through into politicians who are picking up two signals. One, we can do what we like because people aren't interested enough to stop us. Two, better do some things to make ourselves popular. And if that means adopting policies which are completely bogus because they're built on misinformation, well, so be it. That's the way you win elections.
2: In a speech in 1771, the great Anglo-Irish philosopher and political theorist Edmund Burke said... The greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse. Hello, good evening, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to examine Edmund Burke's argument with two challenging and intriguing books. Nick Davies, one of Britain's most respected investigative writers, talks the morality of power, tabloid excess. And the culture of collusion between press and politicians, as teased out in his gripping new book, Hack Attack, how the truth caught up with Rupert Murdoch. And is Alice the first heroine of children's literature? Robert Douglas Fairhurst discusses the elusive figure that is Lewis Carroll, and why the creator of Alice in Wonderland is unusually good at squirming out of the biographical grasp. This is a show about power and corruption, exploration and imagination, integrity and the quest for truth. But first, is everything for sale and nobody exempt? Nick Davies is an award-winning writer and one of Britain's most distinguished investigative reporters. Nick has won Report of the Year at the British Press Awards, the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism and the Paul Foote Award for Campaigning Journalism. Nick's books include Flat Earth News, Dark Heart, The Shocking Truth About Hidden Britain and School Report, Why Britain's Schools Are Failing. Well, Nick's latest publishing venture, Hack Attack, How the Truth Caught Up with Rupert Murdoch, is a fast-paced, dramatic and highly engaging meditation on the nature of power, manipulation and abuse detailing the phone hacking scandal from 2008 and its repercussions on the media landscape. Hack Attack originated in a series of investigative reports Nick wrote for the Guardian newspaper, where he courageously exposed some unsettling truths about the nature of the newspaper business and its sometimes shady relationship with the British political establishment and the Metropolitan Police. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting up with the fearless Nick at the West Cork Literary Festival. Nick told me about the regime of bullying and ruthlessness in the British newspaper industry, an industry which he has worked in for over 40 years.
1: I think I was trying to talk about the way in which the news of the world and some of those other tabloids in England have turned the most sensitive elements of human life, the most private sensitive stuff, into a commodity to be kind of extracted, mined and sold. And that's, you can see how over the last 20 or 30 years there have been phases of it. So there was a point where On the whole, 30 years ago, they would do the private lives of people if they got into trouble with the law. So the vicar who's caught doing something naughty and ends up in court, they do his sex life. And then they broke through into doing some celebrities. Mm. And then there was a crucial moment with Princess Diana, where the royal family were behind this kind of wall of discretion. Rightly or wrongly, Mm. we didn't write about their private lives. But Diana was the biggest human interest story in the world, which is what tabloid newspapers Mm. really like. And she was irresistible. And so rightly or wrongly, they broke through the wall and they did everything about her. There was nothing about her private life which wasn't up for grabs, including who she was having sex with. And once they'd done that, everybody's private life, whether celebrity, private figure, public figure, politician, criminal, we're going to get inside your bedroom and we're going to find out what you're doing. And the object of that, finally, is to be able to sell it. Mm -hmm. So then at that point, everything was for sale.
2: You're describing a very predatory world, a very wild world, almost barbarian.
1: Well... I wouldn't put it quite that way. I think it's a commercially driven world. So if you go back 40 or 50 years, you'd find newspapers local and national in Ireland, Britain, North America, being owned by propagandists, people like Randolph Hearst, Lord Beaverbrook, local families owned local newspapers, and they get taken over by big corporations. People like Rupert Burdock's News Corp Corporation. And what they're primarily interested in, those corporations, is making huge amounts of money. And that message is sent down from the top of the global company through its local hierarchies and down to the editors. You increase the circulation of this newspaper or you will lose your job. And that then is passed down to the staff. And so the reporters go out into the world. And it isn't that they're barbaric. It is that they're ruthlessly devoted to getting the story that nobody else has got so they can sell more copies of the paper. These are pretty horrible places to work quite often. There's a kind of regime of fear and bullying. You get out there and get that story, otherwise you're done for. Do
2: you think the average reader of a newspaper has maybe misinterpreted or misunderstood what newspapers are? That it's about money then.
1: Yeah, I think the average reader of a tabloid newspaper... Is a deeply confused person because, on the one hand, they're buying these newspapers in very large numbers. Mm. They are the most popular newspapers. Mm. On the other hand, those people, those same people, Mm. when they're asked by opinion pollsters, do you, for example, think there should be a reform in regulation to stop newspapers invading people's private lives, will all say certainly yes. Huge proportions, 70 or 80 percent, this has to be stopped, they say. And yet they're the people who are buying the papers. So, There's a wider context here, which is about the Mm depoliticization of our society, Mm -hmm. so that people who used to think of themselves in political terms, I'm working class, I'm a Mm -hmm. trade unionist, Mm -hmm. have been taught by the post-Thatcher era simply to be consumers. Mm -hmm. And once you've shifted... From thinking of the world in those terms to simply being a consumer. You're not really interested in news. Why would you want to know what's happening between the Greeks and the Germans about the euro? You, you just want to know how you can afford a big flash holiday. That's the only interest that Greece has. It's a beach. It isn't a bank. And so I don't. I think there's an enormous number of people who don't care about reality anymore, who don't care about the world, who don't therefore care about news.
2: And what about facts and truth? By saying that, by looking at the world in in, in that frame, that would lead itself to think that people aren't interested in the truth or where their facts are coming from or how their facts are spinned at them.
1: I'm afraid an awful lot of people have stopped caring about the world in general. And therefore, if they're reading a story about some celebrity's sex life, if it happens to be the case that, let's say, if you could quantify it, 20% of the story is fiction... I don't think the consumers of that care very much because it's a good story and it's something to gossip about. And that is all it is. It's gossip. So there's been a real sort of disintegration in the fabric of public debate. You have newspapers, A, who are so underfunded now because of the destructive effect of the Internet, that they actually can't afford to do their job properly most of the time. So they can't afford to go out and get these facts. And then you have readers who are less and less interested in those facts less and less worried about them and the whole thing turns into this commercialized mess i mean i shouldn't overstate it there are still a lot of very good journalists out there there are still a lot of editors who who want to try and do the job properly but it's the whole thing's misfiring it works particularly badly if you're trying to have a democracy because if you have a population that either doesn't care or is somewhat misled by misinformation that it's ingesting from newspapers, that plays through into politicians who are picking up two signals. One, we can do what we like because people aren't interested enough to stop us. Two, we better do some things to make ourselves popular. And if that means adopting policies which are completely bogus because they're built on misinformation, well, so be it. That's the way you win elections.
2: Would it be fair to describe (coughs) Hack Attack as a (coughs) reflection or meditation on power and how power operates from the top Down to the bottom and what that means for your everyday average Joe, whether it's tapping phones, whether it's the stories that are being spun, whatever it is.
1: No, that's exactly right. So I've always felt that this isn't really a story about journalists behaving badly. If it was simply this bunch of hacks are listening to other people's voicemails, it wouldn't have been worth spending six or seven years working on it. The point about it is that from the outset, you can see the shape of this story because you discover very early on that the police at Scotland Yard are sitting on detailed and compelling evidence that this newspaper is committing crime on a vast scale and they fail to investigate it. And immediately you start to get into the world of power. Why would the police refuse to investigate Ho-Ho, a newspaper that is owned by the most powerful media operator in the country? And then if you follow it through, where the book ends up in particular, this is why I wrote a book rather than just doing the newspaper stories, a lot of it takes you into the corridors of power and you can see in real fine detail The way in which Rupert Murdoch and his senior journalists were manipulating and bullying an elected government, into adopting policies which were not those which its voters were expecting them Mm -hmm. to adopt, but which this former Australian with an American passport, this powerful media mogul, wanted. Mm -hmm. So on really big things, you can trace the way in which, for example, Murdoch had a really significant influence on Britain's decision to join the invasion of Iraq. I would say his influence over the decision not to join the European currency, rightly or wrongly, Murdoch's influence was not just significant, it was decisive. We had a Prime Minister who wanted to join the euro, and we didn't. Why? Rupert didn't want him to, because it was going to raise the interest rates on his loans and make his business difficult. I mean, it's an extraordinary distortion. It's democracy out the window.
2: When you were pushing forth what you were discovering... People said you were bonkers, that you were paranoid, <laughs> you were obsessed. A lot of very dirty necks and stuff was put your way, mm-hmm. both from colleagues, people that you would work with throughout the years. How did you keep with the picture with all of that? How did you keep pursuing the facts? How mm-hmm. did you keep going with all of that when so much was riding against you?
1: Well, there's probably two aspects of that. One is, although I'm a freelance, I'm kind of heavily attached to the Guardian. So I'm not on my own. So, for example, there was a senior police officer who was running around misleading press, public and parliament about the truth. And we started pushing back at him in stories I was writing. So he sued. He got the most aggressive law firm in London. Well, I can handle that if the Guardian legal department Mm. just take that off my shoulders. And with a bit of information from me, they wrote back the equivalent of a Scud missile that just blew him apart, and that was the last we heard of him. So it really helps to have a powerful newspaper on your side. And then beyond that... The police and the Murdoch company in the UK were constantly attacking me or The Guardian over this story. And that was tactically really stupid of them, because what they were actually doing was to make it impossible for us to move on to another story, mm. which we might have done, not because we were scared, but just because there was another exciting story to work on. Because they kept putting our own credibility at stake and were attacking our reputation, mm. it meant that we had to stick with the story. We didn't have an option. So we had to carry on digging yeah. and digging and digging until we could prove that we weren't misleading the British people which is what they were accusing us of
2: so you were so deep in it that you just had to keep on going is that what you're saying that there was no way out
1: as long as they were attacking us there wasn't a way out there really Um, wasn't and it was a great story and it does take you right into the heart of power yeah
2: and it's very dramatic it's frightening but on a human level somewhere in it you must have had a huge feeling of uncertainty on the world and who you could trust because you were punching the big guys
1: I don't think you get to a point where you don't know who to trust because actually what happens is rather a heartwarming thing, which is that lots of journalists who'd worked on the News of the World start to help me because they're making a moral judgment that that newspaper is out of order. It's being cruel to the people whose sex lives it's exposing, breaking the law, they and it's got this regime of bullying inside it. So there was a lot of very good support. Like A lot of this is about the world of private investigators, and I had really interesting good guys from that world helping to try to get the story out. So there are times when it's really wearing... And it is kind of sickening finding yourself being attacked in an unfair kind of way. I agree. But the other side to it is you get lots and lots of help and support from people who think enough. We're going to get the truth out. And, you know, uh, George Clooney is trying to direct a film about it. And it's because in one sense, it's kind of classic narrative. It's a bit like the hobbits going to take on the forces of darkness. You know, they can't win. And there they are creeping along, hiding in the rocks. And there's the huge dragon and the bad guys. And no, I don't believe it. They're winning. The little guys are beating the big guy. And it's classic. There's Rupert, the fire-breathing dragon, and he's made to sit in front of that select committee in Parliament in July 2011 and have the humblest day of his life. It's amazing.
2: But you could also look at it that not much has changed either, though. Power and how power corrupts and the different layers of power in society, some of the hidden creepy ones that a lot of us are unaware of. So do you feel a sense of satisfaction here? or Are you disappointed that, you know, some of the big people involved in the story have still have jobs?
1: I, I often say that it's a frustrating thing writing nonfiction mm-hmm. journalism because you, the fantasy that drives you along is that if you write about a bad thing, the bad thing will stop. But it very often doesn't work that way. What happens is that you write about the bad thing, and the people who are responsible for it run around shouting and get very angry and put lawyers onto you to sue you and all the rest of it, and then they carry on regardless. So the impact of this story was huge, mm-hmm. and yet the amount of change that it generated is actually very small. Mm-hmm. So, so far as violating people's lives are concerned, I think the amount of criminal activity by those newspapers. Mm-hmm hacking voicemails mm. and emails. I think that's dropped to zero. So we achieved that much. Mm. So you've
2: practices. But only
1: that much, because yeah. beyond that, I had thought we might get a decent independent regulator to get those newspapers to abide by their own code of conduct. Well, they've been extremely aggressive and engaged in all sorts of falsehood and distortion mm. and bullying and stopped that happening. So they've still got a poodle regulator. So we saw, for example, during our election campaign in the, in the UK earlier this year, them engaging in a politically motivated campaign of falsehood, distortion and spite to make sure that the British electorate didn't produce a Labour government. Mm-hmm. As bad as ever, if there was a decent regulator, it would have stepped in and say, hang on a moment, you guys are supposed to be sticking more or less within what we call the truth. Remember that funny game? They weren't doing that at all. And if you go beyond that into the corridors of mm-hmm. power, which is what I've written such a lot about, you find that nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. Government still tries to placate powerful media moguls because mm-hmm. objectively Rupert Murdoch, for example, still owns four national newspapers in the UK and a news channel government can't afford to do what the people want it's got to deal with the media mogul
2: you've written a powerful book and you've Mm. taken on some of the most powerful and influential people Mm. in society but presumably you will still want to fight on and find another story so how do you keep on doing that
1: actually i've decided to try and stop getting into fights with people (laughs) because i've been doing it for the last 40 years so murdoch is just the sort of most recent fight and um You know, I'm getting old and creaky, and I wouldn't mind having a slightly gentler life. So I've changed my job description at The Guardian. I now write features which take me to interesting parts Mm -hmm. of the world, and I'm trying very hard not to start fights Mm -hmm. with powerful people. Somebody younger and with more energy can carry on doing that.
2: And what about the truth?
1: So the truth is, I think, essential. I think in in personal relationships, as in political relationships, nothing works if you don't have some kind of truth between whether it's the people in a personal relationship or a government and its people. I mean, one of the particular things that I thought was really objectionable about what was happening with the phone hacking was that the editor who'd been responsible for running that little criminal empire, Andy Coulson, had gone to work for David Cameron, who was clearly likely to become our next prime minister. And he was going to have the job of communicating between the government and the people of the UK and he was a liar so I don't want to be naive about this I understand in the world of Mm. politics there's an awful lot of liars around Mm. but to have a fully fledged liar in that particular job it was really obnoxious and wrong and it was one of the things that I suppose we achieved that much as Mm. well we stopped him hanging on to that job
2: and when you go to bed at night and you think back and you look back at that battle what has been the biggest lesson in all of it
1: On the whole, when I go to bed at night, I try and think about other things. But (laughs) what's the biggest lesson of that story? I think probably it's about the power of the spoken word, the written word, and its limits. It's French, reason, I I live in a town in Sussex, in southern England, where Tom Paine lived. And I was thinking about him a few months ago, that he was extraordinary, that he and Jesus achieved more with the spoken word than anybody else. So Tom Paine's involved in the revolution in France and the revolution in the United States because... He thinks so clearly and writes so powerfully and because of the intersection of those thoughts with a particular moment in history. A really, really dramatic power but that's very, very unusual and that actually as a writer you can write all sorts of stuff and people will consume it and and get angry but actually the power of words to change things is very, very limited. What you really want is revolution but that's somebody else's job I guess.
2: Courageous Nick Davies, Hack Attack, How the Truth Caught Up with Rupert Murdoch is published by Random House and retails for in and around 13 euros. Okay, let's tone the pace down a bit with some relaxing music. And when we get back, we'll be looking at the life and writings of one of history's most puzzling writers, Lewis Carroll.
0: Talking Books on Song 106 to 108,
2: and you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Carroll. It's great to have your company this evening. Okay, let's stick with the theme of truth and the book, and celebrate one of the classics of children's literature. Without doubt, the books of Charles Ludwig Dodgson, known to most as Lewis Carroll, have altered the cultural landscape. Gems such as Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass have been read by millions of children all over the world. All you have to do is reflect on some of Lewis Carroll's iconic lines, such as, I can't go back to yesterday, because I was a different person then, or, who in the world am I? And you get hooked into the unique psychological grip of this extraordinary writer. But how much do we know about the secret of Lewis Carroll and his darling literary muse? How do we explain the many gaps, rumours and ambiguities that shadowed Carroll's life? And how misunderstood was Lewis Carroll then and now? Robert Douglas Fairhurst is a professor of English literature at the University of Oxford. His books include The Shaping of Influence in Nineteenth-Century Literature, Becoming Dickens, The Invention of a Novelist and Victorian Afterlives, which won the Duff Cooper Prize in 2011. Well, Robert's latest book, The Story of Alice, Lewis Carroll and the Secret History of Wonderland is as much a meditation on truth, love and literary imagination as it is a study of the bewildering history of this talented author. In The Story of Alice, Robert writes, Alice was hardly unusual in wanting to view her life as a story. As many writers have pointed out, narrative provides an attractive set of models to follow when we want to make sense of uncertainties. A story reflects life but also redeems it. I asked Robert about an intriguing quote he has in his book, a throwaway comment Lewis Carroll apparently said to a pushy reporter. My constant aim is to remain personally unknown to the world. I asked Robert, how much did Lewis Carroll shy away from public life and how much had he to
3: hide? Yes, but of course he didn't mind being known as a writer. What he hated was the idea that his real self, Charles Dodgson might be known to people, and that's why when people sent him letters at Christchurch addressed to Lewis Carroll, he sent them back with the words not known written across the envelope. And what I suppose I discovered when I was doing the research of this book is this weird sense in which he was two people in one, that he was both Charles Dodgson, the rather dour, dreary mathematician who, you know, went through life annoying people and complaining about the size of his hassock and how his cauliflower was cooked. And he was Lewis Carroll, who went through life with a head full of stories and a pocket full of puzzles, who was the friend of, you know, literally hundreds of children. And it was trying to reconcile those two figures that I found so fascinating.
2: And he's definitely a very odd character, And by the fact that he was so odd, he lends himself to so much speculation and he lived quite an ambiguous life and lifestyle. So he's very hard to put in a box, isn't he?
3: No, he is. I mean, one of the things that the cover of my book does is it depicts one of the stories of Alice as a kind of blank into which we can project whatever we want. So she's become a kind of inkblot or a kind of funfair mirror who reflects everything that's been going on around her for the last 150 years. But the same is true of uh, Dodgson, of Carroll as well. The word paedophile, for instance, is invented in 1903 after he's died. But at the time he was seen as a wholly innocent. Since then he's been seen as increasingly creepy. And what that means, I suppose, is that he too has simply reflected everything that's been going on around him in terms of how we think about children and about childhood and about sexuality and about ourselves.
2: It's very unsettling, Robert, but at the same time, do you think it's fair to judge him by contemporary standards? he lived in a Victorian times when things were very different. The age of sexual consent was 12. I think in his lifetime it was moved up to 16. So there were very, very different times and awareness of these types of issues wasn't as, no excuse, but it was a very different time indeed.
3: Yes, it was. I mean, and you're right that in, in 1865, the age of consent for girls is moved from it was 12, it's moved up to 13. So that's the year that Alice in Wonderland is first published. And it's not raised to 16 until 1885 when this great scandal about prostitutes, child prostitutes um, in London. One of the things that I discovered when I was uh, writing the book is that, yes, he is unsettling, and it is very hard to grasp him. And that's, in some ways, it's like the picture that starts off Alice trying to get into Wonderland. She tries to get into Wonderland through a very little door, and she can't squeeze through the door. And in some ways, that's the situation of a biographer or a critic of a reader trying to get back into Victorian Oxford trying to understand that world that shaped him, that he moved in. And it's very, very hard.
2: And in understanding that world, how did you put yourself in other people's shoes who were judging them then?
3: Well, I suppose, I mean, like a lot of people, I'd always taken these stories for granted, Mm -hmm. that I'd grown up with them or they'd grown up with me. And they're the kind of stories you know before you know how to read. I suppose it's only when I moved to Oxford, uh, which I did in 2002 when I started working there, that I realise what a mad and maddening place it is. One of these places that seems entirely sane and logical to the people within it, and from the outside seems extraordinary and bizarre and baffling. And so, in some ways, trying to put myself in the position of, for instance, Alice in Wonderland, All I had to do was look around me because that is the world that she moves through. Wonderland is like a kind of strange, distorted parody of Victorian Oxford. And as someone coming to Oxford from the outside, I really sympathised with that. I I, I also felt that I was, you know, treading in a a world full of baffling creatures and aged men and things I just didn't understand.
2: Now, your book looks at Lewis Carroll and also Alice. And you said something to me quite extraordinary when we were walking up into the studio. You said that... It must be very, very difficult to live your life knowing that you're central to a fictitious character, that you aren't really what's important. It was a fictitious version of your character that was important yeah, and that you're somehow sidelined in it all.
3: That's right. And, and what happened to um, Alice Little is that she grew up, she married well, she moved into this grand country mansion, but... It was a kind of secret, it was a secret that, that she kept within her family and it's only once she needed some money after her husband had died and she sold the original manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground, the original story that Carol had written for her, and suddenly she found herself being splashed across the newspapers and she turned into this reluctant celebrity and suddenly everyone knew that she was the original Alice and what was especially weird was that nobody seemed to think that she was an old woman as she was then. Everyone described her as if she was still a little girl, as if she was somehow, you know, wearing a mask and she could remove it at any stage and, and still be that little girl that Tenniel had put in the illustrations.
2: That must have been very difficult for her. Now, she was, came from a very wealthy background and she lived a very comfortable life. But to live in that shadow of a fictitious character, and it's not you, It's just a version of you. That must have been
3: stifling. I think she found it, in some way. she found it rather exciting uh, rather than stifling. Um, There's a bit of paper I found in in an archive where it shows that she'd been practising her autograph. She signed herself Alice in Wonderland. So clearly, towards the end of her life, she's, she's still yeah, excited by the idea. But on the other hand, right at the end of her life, uh, in 1932, she went to America. She was given an honorary degree in New York. Um, again, she was splashed across the newspapers. She went there with her son, who wrote a little um, unpublished diary called Visiting America with a Celebrity. You know, she'd, she'd achieved that kind of hello, sort of celebrity status. And yet she came back and she wrote a letter saying, I do get tired of being Alice in Wonderland. Is that wrong? But I do get tired.
2: It is understandable though. She strikes me as being a little vacuous and quite cold. Is that harsh of me?
3: Well, what's interesting is we don't know enough about her to know whether that is harsh or not. In some ways, she was a secret even to herself. If you look at her diary, which is full of blanks, and it's just full of lists of dinner engagements and what her husband's up to, her letters divulge almost nothing about herself. Memories in her family seem to recall her as sort of slightly detached, slightly aloof, maybe slightly chilly. But it's as if her her most important life, her most vivid experiences, were when she was a fictional character. And that's what was perhaps so difficult for her. The fact that everything that had happened to her that was most important had happened before she was eight years old.
2: Can I ask you about Lewis Carroll's religious background? He was ordained a deacon. I'm just wondering... How religious was he or did he need the structure of what a religious community provided in order to maintain a somewhat healthy existence?
3: Yes, I mean, there's one of his letters where he talks about an absolute distinction between right and wrong. One of the reasons he needed religion was it gave him exactly that distinction And it's also the reason he enjoyed maths. Mm. Maths also gave him an absolute distinction between right and wrong. What's interesting about the Alice books is, though, it takes that idea of order and structure and it messes them up. Mm. It's the world of logic and order and truth colliding against and collapsing into a world of disorder and mayhem and fun and jokes. Imagine to freedom. Exactly. It's like a little kind of ode to freedom. Mm.
2: How do you explain his relationship with the little family and how things were suddenly quite severed?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think their relationship was quite strained from the beginning. Uh, There's one of his diary entries where he says that uh, he's been given a hint by the mother that he's intruded on the family too much recently uh, and therefore he should, you know, detach himself from them and that was after he had got to know the children when they were very young alice was only four when he first met her and he'd been you know entertaining them taking them on boat trips and so on, playing croquet with them but in fact if you look at his later diaries that resolution only lasted about 10 days and he kept going back and in fact it's only about a year after he first tells the story about alice in wonderland on that famous boat trip on the 4th of July in 1862, which has now become legendary. It's only about a year after that that they have this extraordinary kind of break for several months. And what's interesting is that we don't know why, that there were pages in his diary that were removed by one of his relatives later. And it might be that his intentions were misunderstood, or it might be they were entirely understood. And it could be that he was interested in Alice's older sister, who was called Lorena, who would have been not marriageable. Because she was still quite young, but it wasn't unknown for older men to become engaged to younger women.
2: But clearly, Robert He was in love with children. But when there are such dramatic events taking place in people's lives where things don't add up and you can speculate, well, that's when questions are asked and it all doesn't stack up.
3: It's a very difficult one to call. It, it, it is, but then it's interesting that what he said in his diary was that... He didn't say he thought his intentions had been misunderstood. He said, I held aloof from the littles as I have done all term. The only other time in all his diaries where he uses that same phrase, I held aloof was in relation to a group of little girls at the seaside in Eastbourne when he thought his intentions had been misunderstood. So it's possible that he was indeed entirely innocent in his own eyes and it was just that the family were becoming uneasy that he was spending so much time with their daughters.
2: And do you think because he was such a brilliant writer and such a well-known public intellectual in Oxford at the time that society almost ignored some of these questionable activities, whether there was substance to them or not.
3: Well, I mean, what you're pushing towards is What he a Victorian Jimmy Savile um, and what's tricky is that we, of course, are interpreting him through the modern lens of anxiety and suspicion. That's not to say that There weren't suspicions, not about him, but about other people Mm. uh, at the time. Ernest Dowson, who was another poet, uh, who was in Oxford uh, a little bit later in the century, said there was a cult of little girls. And it was something which was was understood to be going on, but not the kind of cult which involves cultivating them Mm. or grooming them, as we would now say, for sex. It was actually the opposite. The idea is that you could spend time with little girls precisely because you know it wouldn't go anywhere. So it's a way for getting celibate, unmarried dons, having female company without there being any gossip, without tongues starting to wag. It just happens that now the situation has been reversed.
2: Now, he took a lot of photographs and was actually quite a brilliant photographer. And one of the revealing things that you have in your book is that only 1% of these photographs were of actually naked children. Mm, that, so that's right, So yes. that gives a different twist to things, doesn't it?
3: Yes. I mean, the reason that he enjoyed taking photographs of children was, well, it's a bit like that song in, in Gigi where Maurice Chevalier sings, you know, thank heavens for little girls, for little girls get bigger every day. Of course, if you take a photograph of a little girl, she doesn't get bigger. She stays exactly the same size. So it was a way in which he could master his anxiety about children outgrowing him and outgrowing his love for them. The reason he took naked photographs was because of what he'd thought of as a child's purity. For him, like a lot of his contemporaries, a child was like a little angel who had floated free from heaven... And the best way to capture that innocence and that purity was to take her naked. Because that way, she was like a little Eve who'd been restored to paradise. And in fact, one of the only photographs that still exists of a naked child is of a little girl called Evelyn. And he takes her naked and then has a whole background painted in, which makes it clear she's been restored to a kind of paradise. So Evelyn is like a little modern Eve. Now, that's the theory... The problem that we've got now as modern viewers is that a lot of the poses the children take up are the same as you would get in artistic nudes. Mm. And that line between naked and unself conscious or nude and therefore part of a different kind of artistic tradition, that's very, very difficult to square. It it means that when you look at these pictures, they're like trick pictures, Mm. two pictures in one, and what you see depends on what you expect to get. Mm. If you expect to see the photographs of a paedophile, that's what you'll see. Mm. If you expect to see the photographs of a holy innocent, that's what you'll see.
2: And I suppose it comes down to intent and understanding. How did that impact on you spending so much time? You spent a couple of years putting this book together and it's extraordinarily well researched and very well written, I might add. But did that put you in a very uncomfortable, unsettling place or how did you approach all of that because I'm sure there were days you were walking around Oxford when you'd a very fixed idea of things and other days the research shook you in a different way and put you in a different direction or gave a different frame on things.
3: It absolutely did. One of the things about Wonderland it is that a place not just of wonder in the sense of amazement and astonishment and surprise it's also a place that makes you wonder it makes you curious it means it unsettles all your assumptions about everything. For me, I mean, if I can be autobiographical about it, the most difficult thing about writing the book actually was about one of my students who, it turned out, didn't have the chance to grow up because he died just as I was about to start writing it. A very brilliant young man. And that that experience really uh, quite a long grieving process for me. I grew quite close to him. Uh, he was someone who I had really tried to support through his his first year when he was full of doubts and anxieties about whether he should be studying literature or indeed be at university. And at the end of that first year, he he, he died very suddenly, very tragically. What that did to me in terms of the research and the writing is, I suppose, make me realise that a lot of the things that Carol was obsessed by, such as fixing childhood at a particular moment trying to come to terms with the fact that he was growing older when other people were not growing older, such as the girl he called his dream child, Alice. You know, These were things that were starting to reflect rather uncomfortably on what I was going through as well, in a very, very different way. But it means that I did feel that I had a personal investment in this book, as I haven't with anything else I've written.
2: But by the nature of the topic itself is a very intense and demanding and challenging topic and to research, which asks very big moral questions, which require a lot of discipline and also integrity to fully digest and understand. So I imagine that in itself put you under a lot of pressure.
3: Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Um, and one of the things that Carol says in one of his letters is that we are beings of very mixed motives. Mm-hmm. And of course, like any writer, you have to think about what your own motives are For writing in the first place and whether they too are mixed. In my case, I think having explored this kind of quite thoroughly in my my own head before and, and as I was writing it, I suppose my main concern was to be true to the facts and not to simply reflect the version of Carol that readers now might expect to find.
2: Do you think, though, that when we come across characters like Lewis Carroll and there are questions to be asked and very valid and reasoned questions to be asked about his private life, do you think that we can have a book in our life that can transform our lives, can inspire a life and certain life choices? Do you think that in ways, because the writer may be flawed and have some personal failings in some way, that, you know, they may write a great book, but that doesn't mean they're a great person? And do you think that we just have to grow up and realise about some of the great people in history?
3: I think one of the reasons that Carroll didn't like being lionised and hated the idea of being a literary celebrity mm-hmm. was precisely because he thought of himself as a flawed and failing human being. Now, of course, it might be his standards were much, much higher than most other people's mm-hmm. standards, that he was an absolutist, mm-hmm. which is why when he produced photographs, mm-hmm. he often described them as failures. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was something wasn't quite right. Mm-hmm. So for him, things were either failures or they were successes. And I suspect he thought of himself as a failure in that way because he wasn't as perfect as he might uh, have wanted to be. And that's why he enjoyed the company of children so much. He could displace all his anxieties about himself onto them.
2: Do you think his literary imagination and what he was able to do with Alice in Wonderland, do you think he is one of the geniuses of all time? If you compare Alice in Wonderland to some of the other great books of Victorian times, it stands out. People lived their lives through Alice in Wonderland. If we look at culturally how it's affected the cultural landscape, it's one of the monumental books, isn't it?
3: It is indeed. Um, I mean, if if characters, literary characters, can be national treasures, Mm. I suppose. I mean, she's an international treasure. You know, the books have been translated into over 170 languages. They've never been out of print. You can't uh, open up a book without seeing some allusion to uh, the books or the words that are floated into everyday vocabulary. Of course, you know, they are everywhere. I said earlier that she, uh, the real Alice, Alice Little, became a reluctant Mm. celebrity. I think Harold perhaps was an accidental genius. Mm. I don't think that he plans the book in a way that he expected it to become the huge international success it did. And in some ways, he was slightly surprised and alarmed when it did.
2: But he tapped into something that was that sense of wonderment in the world that was needed in Victorian times, which released people from those conservative, structured grips, societal grips, so that what he was doing was something so unbelievably innovative that...
3: In itself was genius. I think that's right. Um, And if you compare what he was doing in the Alice books with the earlier children's books, you see that there is a watershed moment. And he doesn't entirely invent it, but he does push it in a very, very new and exciting direction. For the first time, children are encouraged to not only explore imaginary worlds, but to see themselves as the heroes of those worlds. And Alice, of course, is is a heroine. She's the first heroine of children's literature, the first serious heroine. Uh, which is why Robert Graves called her the prime heroine of our nation. She's a, she's a little model of, of, of sturdy British common sense in this bizarre, baffling world she finds herself in.
2: And on that point, you quote Virginia Woolf so beautifully that these aren't just books for children, they're books for us all. I think she said something on the lines of, in these books that we become children ourselves.
3: That's right. Um, and in some ways, the Alice, it's not just there are two Alice books. Each of those books is two books in one. If you're a child, they're a way in which you can learn how to deal with a world, the real world, which is often an alarming and a hostile place, full of rules you don't quite understand, and yet still find some sense of fun and surprise in that world. For adults, though, they're little passports back to childhood. You open up the book and it's like opening the door to the TARDIS, a little TARDIS that takes you back to your own childhood, back before things became, well, as we all know, slightly more baffling
2: and when you read Alice in Wonderland now and having spent so many years researching Lewis Carroll at the culture that's around him the personalities friends and family what does that do to a rereading and how does that lean into a rereading mm. of Alice in Wonderland or does it in any way
3: it does. I mean, and I, and I do still reread the books and and I end my own book by talking about the circumstances in which I picked them off the shelf the last time I did do that. And what they do, I think, is they refresh your capacity to read. They are books for readers because so much of what they're about is how to interpret, how to see and how to think and how to not take anything for granted. And that's the kind of thing that you can never lose. And it's, I suppose... Um, I and mean, it's evidence that nonsense doesn't respect age boundaries. There's always a place for nonsense in the world.
2: I know that when you end the book, and you end it on saying that Alice in Wonderland changes the way how you think and how you feel. That's an extraordinary thing that a book can do that, isn't it?
3: It is. And, and what's even more extraordinary is that a lot of books um, are exhausted after you've read them once or twice, aren't they? Whereas this is the kind of book that in some ways is always different whenever you come back to it. Because it is a mirror that reflects you. And as you change, it changes. Which is why the whole thing is like one of these strange funfair mirrors. It's never the same book twice. You can't step into the pages in quite the same way twice.
2: So it's really Wonderland?
3: It is indeed. It is a wonderful book about Wonderland. And that's why, as one of the obituaries for Carol said, we are all Alice, more or less.
2: Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now, next week, Talking Books is going to dip into a bit of queer fiction with American writer Chloe Caldwell and hear about the role of the love song in human culture. So lots to look forward to there. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books... I'd like to end tonight's show with some words from the conclusions to Robert Douglas Fairhurst's The Story of Alice, where Robert writes, Wonderland is an imaginative universe that is still expanding. Francis Bufford has suggested that the great pleasure of reading stories in childhood that begin in the real world and then take you somewhere else is that once opened, the door would never entirely shut behind you. The door into Wonderland works like that wonderland may exist in our heads too and because this door never altogether shuts behind us after we return to the life that exists outside books it never seems quite the same again a trip to wonderland unpeels the world around us and makes it seem fresh and new good night
0: 6 to 1